This is an audio excerpt from the book Stories from the Messengers, recorded December 23rd, 2017. My name is Mike Cleland, and I am the author, and I am in the final weeks of putting together this big project. The book is 19 separate stories, each involving owls and UFOs. And these are real accounts. I feel very strongly that I have captured these experiences very well, and I have worked very closely with the people involved. It has been a really powerful, creative, and rewarding experience to put together this book. And I appreciate it enormously, the commitment and the openness of, of all the people who have let me tell their stories. I, I, I take that very seriously as a responsibility. This will be one of the final chapters, and within this chapter is a, a mood or a vibe that is paralleled in the two remaining chapters after it. Um, part of the reason I'm recording this is because I have a cold, and my voice is really deep, and I don't get to sound like this very often. I'm kind of fatigued, and I am talking very slowly, which is unusual for me, and I think my ailment helped create a tidy little audio. What you are about to listen to lasts roughly 40 minutes. Please enjoy. Chapter 17. Owls and Gratitude. Part 1. Don's Owl Experience. Oddly enough, I never thought of the following experience as an owl story, although it definitely is albeit the owl playing only a seemingly minor part. This was the first line of an incredible account. It arrived in a rather long email from a fellow named Don, and I was deeply moved while first reading it. My initial thought was that it would be an excellent chapter for this book. There wouldn't be much to do, just plop the text of the email into the manuscript and call it done. What I didn't realize was that there would soon be a follow-up owl account from another fellow, and his story eerily mirrored Don's. Shortly after that, I received a third very similar owl account from a woman in Massachusetts. On some level, all three of these people were saying the same thing. While digging into each of these stories, I was shocked at the depth and subtlety of what emerged. These accounts reinforced each other and needed to be thoroughly explored, making this the longest chapter in the book, with three subchapters. The owl story in Don's initial email is the centerpiece of this chapter, shared below in its near-complete form. The heartening mood of this story is reflected back in the other accounts, all pointing to some deeper human experience. Raised on a farm, Don spent his childhood outdoors. He began his letter describing a sense of connection to his home. I grew up hunting, farming, raising cattle, and, like most hillbillies, I knew every inch of the land around our farms. I knew every rock, every tree, and I knew the habits of the animals in the forest as well as I know my own. He left Missouri as a young man and returned in 2001 when he was 35 years old after living in Florida for five years. Now, back in his hometown, he ran into his brother, who was all geared up for deer hunting. What follows is a wonderful story in Don's own words. He was dressed in camouflage and had a bottle of doe scent, which supposedly gives off the smell of a doe in heat and is supposed to attract the bucks and he told me he had a place on our farm where he had been spreading corn all summer to attract the deer. I laughed at him, 
saying something like, you don't need all that. You just go into the woods, climb a tree along the right deer trail and wait. It's easy. He told me hunting wasn't as easy as it used to be and pointed out that I had not deer hunted in over 10 years. So I made a bet with him. I told him I could go out into the woods and have a deer within 30 minutes. I knew where the deer are at any given time of the day, at any time of the year, because I had spent my entire childhood playing in those woods. I borrowed my dad's 30-30 rifle, and that afternoon around 4.30 p.m., I drove to my great-grandparent's farm and walked into the woods, intent on winning that bet. I should note that, as I was raised to do, I never, ever hunted for trophy. I always hunted only for the table, for meat. At this point in his letter, he said, I've always been rather psychic. In his family, there seemed to be one in every generation with what his great Scottish grandmother calls the sight. Among his siblings, it turned out to be Don. He described a lifelong fascination with all things paranormal, everything from Bigfoot to ghosts to UFOs to prophecies. A few years earlier, he had read about remote viewing and then set about to train and practice these skills. He put in a lot of hard work and had some remarkable results. This aspect seems to play into what unfolded on that afternoon he was hunting. There will be more about this later in the chapter. When I set out into the woods that afternoon, I said a quick, quiet prayer, thanking God and the universe for this opportunity and asking for a quick, clean kill, knowing that my wife and I would be eating that deer over the coming winter. I found the tree I was looking for, a huge white oak on top of a ridge at the edge of a wide, flat field. I climbed up and stood on a large limb about 12 feet off the ground. I leaned against the tree trunk and watched the old trail that leads up onto the ridge from the deep hollow nearby. I knew from childhood days that deer always come up and down that old trail or near it and feed on the grass in the ridgetop fields every night. I knew their habits as well as I know my own. After about 10 minutes, as I stood there leaning against the tree trunk, I began to get a strange feeling. The hair on the back of my neck stood up and everything in the forest went totally silent. It was extremely strange. It almost seemed like time itself had stopped. It was as if myself and the area around me was in a bubble where everything had just stopped. As if the world was still going on around me, but only outside that bubble that I was in. He was describing things that I've heard many times before. Normal reality had dissolved and there was a subtle transition into something entirely different. This odd sense of distortion is at the core of many of the more mystical UFO accounts. I felt like I was in a sort of limbo, somehow outside my normal time and space, and I felt a sense of being watched. It felt like I was in a bucket with entities peering down at me, watching me, as if I was a science experiment or something. Now, I don't mean that exactly. I mean that was the sense I had the sense of being watched by a group of invisible beings that were somehow looking down and in to where I was at. I began to feel something behind me. It was the feeling of a presence, of an energy building. I turned around. Across that brushy field, among some small trees and saplings here and there, and at about the level of my height of the tree, I could see a small white dot about 150 yards away. This small white ball was gently moving up and down, slowly getting bigger and bigger. I realized it wasn't getting bigger. It was getting closer. As the white orb got larger and larger, actually closer and closer, at about 50 feet away, it resolved into what it actually was. 
a pure white snowy owl. The owl was gently and slowly beating its wings, causing it to sway gently up and down, coming straight towards me. As it neared me, it glided right past, only about ten feet away and exactly at my eye level. As it passed me, the owl turned its head and stared directly into my eyes. I was in awe. Snowy owls, while not completely unknown in South Missouri, are very rare. I spent my childhood in these woods, as I've described, and I've only seen a snowy owl twice prior to this in my lifetime. I've seen hundreds of barn owls, screech owls, great horned owls, etc., but only two snowy owls. As the owl glided by, I turned my head and followed it with my eyes. The owl, after looking directly into my eyes, turned its head forward again. It flew straight down the trail I had been watching previously and disappeared into the trees. At that exact instant, a huge doe stepped out onto the trail right below the spot where the owl had disappeared, and it stood there. She turned her head and looked directly at me, as if saying, Here I am. Shoot. I slowly raised the rifle and shot. The sound of the rifle was odd, sort of muffled sounding. The doe jumped and ran. I knew it was a good kill, and I knew she wouldn't run far. But anyone with any hunting experience will tell you, you don't immediately run after the deer you've just shot. Instead, you wait and give them time to die. A deer will usually lay down close by somewhere and die, but if you scare them up before they expire, you'll be tracking that deer all day. A deer that has been shot through the heart can still run over a mile before dying. So I waited for what seemed like about ten minutes, and I think I might have even drifted off to sleep for a second or two. I gradually but steadily came to and looked around. It was still deathly quiet. I climbed down from the tree and started looking for the doe. I couldn't find her anywhere. I noticed that the crunching of the dead leaves under my feet seemed muffled and dead-sounding. The woods were very quiet. Even the breeze was completely still. I could not believe that I couldn't find my deer. I knew it was a good shot and had to be through the heart and probably at least one lung. She couldn't have gone far, but I could not find her anywhere among the trees. I said another prayer, asking God and the universe to help me. I did not want to waste this deer's life, although I knew, even if I never found it, the coyotes would eat well that night. Just then, another very strange thing happened. A red squirrel began chattering and scolding in a nearby tree. I stopped and looked at it. He was sitting in a branch, about seven feet off the ground, about thirty feet away from me and staring directly at me. I stopped in my tracks, and, my mind blank, just stared back, not knowing what to think or feel. Suddenly the squirrel ran down the tree and took off running through the dead and dry leaves. After about thirty more feet, he stopped, turned, and looked at me and began chattering away. I took this as a sign, a sort of omen. So in my mind I communicated with the squirrel, asking him to help me find the doe so she wouldn't go to waste. I realize how ridiculous this sounds, but at the time... In that strange, timeless, limbo-like state the squirrel and I both seemed to be in, it seemed completely normal and reasonable. As if in response to my request, the squirrel wheeled around and took off leaping and running through the woods, jumping over dead branches, racing through the leaves, and every now and then stopping and turning to watch me as I struggled to keep up. I followed him in his twisty, turning path for what was probably only about fifty feet, and I lost sight of him when he raced around a big red oak tree. I approached the tree and stepped around it. 
and I was shocked at what I saw. The squirrel was hanging on the trunk of a white oak tree about three feet off the ground, staring at me and chattering away. In front of him, in a shallow depression, lay the dead doe. It was that depression that had caused me to miss finding the doe when I had repeatedly searched for her earlier. She could not be seen until I was almost right on top of her. But what really shocked me was the glimpse of something that pulled my eyes upward. On a branch, around 30 feet above the ground, sat the snowy owl, also staring at me. The instant I saw that owl, the squirrel fell completely silent. Despite the huge number of paranormal events that have occurred over my lifetime, I was in total, complete shock. Despite the close, soul-deep connection with nature that I have always had, and despite my easy communication with animals of all kinds, I was teetering on the edge of plain disbelief. I was having a very difficult time assimilating everything that had just occurred over the last 20 minutes or so. Moving slowly, I began easing my way towards the doe, but the instant I moved, that squirrel ran away to a nearby tree about 30 feet away and ran up it, stopping and sitting on a limb, seemingly oblivious to me now. At the same instant, the owl flew away, disappearing into the forest. The oddly silent, in a time warp atmosphere, gradually went away. It didn't change all at once. First I began to notice a slight breeze. Then I began to hear birds singing and chirping, and, in the distance, I heard some crows cawing. A sense of normalcy sort of trickled back in. I took out my hunting knife and cut out the scent glands of the doe's legs and dragged her out into the edge of the pasture. After gutting and dressing her, I left the doe there and walked out of the woods to get my pickup truck so I wouldn't have to drag the huge doe all the way out of the woods. She was very old. Her teeth were worn down and she was very large. At the butcher shop, she weighed 165 pounds. Most large white-tailed does never really exceed 140 pounds after field dressing. It was obvious she was reaching the end of her lifespan. I was grateful that I was able to give her a quick, relatively painless death and in the process, she provided food for me and my wife. By the way, I was in and out of the woods in 27 minutes, and I won the bet with my little brother. To this day, some 15 years later, I still think about that whole experience. From beginning to end, it was extremely strange. It was as if the snowy owl was helping by causing me to look exactly where the doe stepped out onto the trail. Then the doe stood there, broadsiding me watching me raise the rifle and shoot, and this was several days into hunting season. She should have been spooked and jumpy by that time. Then the squirrel. It literally led me to where the dead doe was lying, and the owl was there waiting for me perched above the doe. All of that, coupled with the odd, silent, timeless feeling of it all. It became an event I will never forget and probably never totally understand. In many ways, Don's story reads like a UFO report without a UFO. He wrote me later, I hope I was able to communicate the sheer strangeness of my experience. The eerie silence and the sense that time itself had stopped was so strange. This sounds a lot like an abduction account, and he was aware of this, and said this was one of the reasons he contacted me. He added, I've read where people who investigate UFO abductions refer to that as the Oz factor. I guess the same thing, or something similar, happens to abductees. Beyond the strange silence, there was something more. He presented all of it as something heartfelt, 
as if the physical act of hunting was something deeper, a spiritual act of divine grace. He said, One thing I know I failed to relate is what a spiritual experience the whole thing was. I mean, I prayed beforehand for a quick, clean kill, thanking God for the deer ahead of time. And through it all, I felt so in tune with the universe, with life, with the Creator, and I was able to give that old doe an easy, virtual, pain-free death. The whole thing felt like a gift from God. I said a prayer of thanks afterwards, and thanked the doe herself for giving her life so my wife and I could eat. That he would see an owl in such a highly charged moment is of great interest to me. I suspect hunters throughout the ages have told similar stories around the village campfire, and our mythologies have arisen from the seeds of their experiences. Perhaps Don confronted something universal in the human experience, the mystical elements of the hunt. His connection with nature and gratitude are at the heart of this story. I am certain our hairy ancestors confronted the same thing, albeit with a pointed stick instead of their father's 30-30, Hunting has been passed down from father and son from the dawn of man. I recognize something very powerful in Don's account, an awareness of the sanctity of his actions and his relationship to the wild. The Greek goddess Diana is referenced a lot in this book and in my research. The goddess of the forest and the hunt, she is often depicted with a fawn and a bow. Hunting seems like it should be something bold and masculine. But the myths of our ancestors have been entrusted to a gentle maiden. Don said, I was raised to hunt for the table. He went on to explain, Oddly enough, neither I nor my brother hunt anymore. I just dislike killing an animal. I remember my father got to be the same way when he got older. Don saw not just an owl, but a white snowy owl. Its color and rarity make me pay closer attention within many of the world's shamanic traditions, especially the Native American lore, the white owl has a deeper spiritual role than other owls. If one sees a white owl, it's thought to be delivering an inward message. The communication isn't meant for anything worldly. It's a message to the soul. Abductees will often report unusual animal sightings in the context of their UFO experience. The witness sees one thing, but it might not be what it appears to be. There seems to be a form of psychic projection in the mind of the observer, and this illusion hides something, like a skinny gray alien. There are commonalities of what gets reported as a screen memory, and first on the list is owls, followed by deer. After that, within the short list of less common animals are squirrels, which might be reported as absurdly large. An owl, deer, and squirrel are all key players in Don's account, as well as in the UFO abduction lore. Two UFO Sightings Given the power of Don's owl experience, I wasn't surprised that he's also had two UFO sightings. The first took place while playing outside with his older brother, when he was around 10 or 11 years old. He heard a crackling noise from overhead. I looked up and saw a reddish-orange fireball traveling across the sky directly above us. I watched it as it traveled to the horizon and disappeared. I kept expecting an explosion from over the horizon, but none ever came. This sighting might have been nothing more than some kind of rare daylight meteorite, but similar reports are taken seriously by UFO investigators. Don's second sighting seems a bit more significant. 
It happened as an adult in 1997 while driving alone in South Florida. He saw three cars parked alongside the highway and people standing on the shoulder pointing up to the sky. Looking up through his windshield, he saw a huge black triangle like the others. He pulled over and got out of his car. It was perfectly silent and moved very slow. And even more strange was it seemed to disappear when he focused on it. He said, you could only see it if you looked at the place in the sky beside it. When you looked directly at it, all you could see was a kind of hazy, shimmering place in the blueness of the sky, like the heat rising off a highway. But when you looked off to the side of where it was, then it popped into view. We all stood there and watched it as it slowly made its way out over the Everglades. Within Don's deer hunting story, there's one detail that seems significant. His commitment to remote viewing. Don was 30 years old when he read his first book on the subject, and the text described training techniques to test and practice the procedure. He said, I nailed my first target and I was hooked. After his initial success, Don devoured every book he could find on the subject. He began a daily practice of remote viewing exercises to hone his skills, and this involved up to five double-blind training targets every day. He said, it took a lot of hard work, but after six months or so, I was very, very good. For the next several years, he dedicated up to five hours each day on remote viewing sessions. And it was during the height of his obsession that the white owl appeared to him while deer hunting. Remote viewing is a controlled process that uses psychic abilities to acquire information across time and space. Typically, a remote viewer is expected to describe an object, event, or location hidden from physical view or separated by distance. These procedures were originally developed by the United States military and intelligence services for espionage purposes. The initial program began in the mid-1970s and was allegedly terminated in 1995. The viewer would work with a partner, referred to as the handler or monitor, and would be asked to give mental impressions of something hidden from view. The monitor might ask, what is in this envelope? Or... Describe what you see at the coordinates written on this paper. During the Cold War, targets might have included a Soviet missile base in Siberia or the contents of a locked drawer in the Kremlin. Many of their descriptions were eventually verified, indicating that these psychic techniques were a viable intelligence-gathering tool. They apparently had similar success with accessing people, entering their minds the same way they could enter a Russian airplane hangar. They also found they could view forward and backwards in time. To ensure the viewer wasn't being influenced by any subtle clues or impressions from the monitor, a series of strict safeguards were put in place. The target would be decided by a third person beforehand, and any description or coordinate would be assigned a series of random numbers. These would be typed onto a single page, sealed in an envelope, and handed to the monitor. Neither the monitor nor the viewer would have any clue what they were going to view. These double-blind measures were created to ensure there was nothing to influence what the viewer would see. Investigative journalist and author Jim Mars wrote what is considered the first comprehensive book on remote viewing. He interviewed most of the people involved in the initial military program, and Mars said something interesting about these men. Every single one of the military-trained remote viewers had experiences with UFOs. They all had these experiences. 
author and scientist Dr. Jacques Vallée was connected with a remote viewing program in its early stages, and he said one of the reasons he was brought into the research was his knowledge of the UFO phenomenon. Vallée said, They noticed many of their subjects related their becoming aware of their talents through a light in the sky, or what you would call a UFO incident. It seems like you need UFO abductee on your resume to get a job as a remote viewer. Does this mean they are all abductees? Maybe. Some of the viewers involved have come forward with compelling accounts of their own abduction. I asked Don the same question I've asked everyone who's had both an odd owl experience and a UFO sighting, if he thought he might be a UFO abductee. He said no, but then went on to tell me two stories, both that sound a lot like what an abductee might tell. The first was a missing time event that coincided with an odd light in the sky. The other was a night when he and his wife were both surprised to wake up with their pajamas on backwards, inside out, or buttoned up wrong. Lynn Buchanan Views Evil and Peace Lynn Buchanan was one of the most acclaimed of the first-generation military remote viewers. He speaks openly about his UFO contact experience and says plainly it was an abduction. Lynn's abilities prove especially useful when accessing the mind of a human target. The intention of these mental access sessions was to dig deeper than what would be possible in a standard psychological profile. These were military assignments, so he was tasked with viewing drug lords, terrorists, and brutal dictators. Yet entering the mind of the target meant feeling their feelings and thinking their thoughts. His days were spent inside the minds of murderers and tyrants, and it was tearing him apart. He said, in a very real way, you actually become that person, at least partially for the span of the session. While driving home on a sunny spring day, after a long stretch of these dark assignments, he began casually making plans to kill his wife. Lynn wrote, I almost laughed that such a stray thought had come into my mind. Yet as I rode on towards home, I realized that I actually did have plans to kill my wife. The realization of it sent a shock of electricity through me which is impossible to describe. He pulled over, got out of his car, and stayed there on the side of the highway until all those horrific ideas were cleared away. After that, he worked to create a set of strict protocols to detoxify these kinds of mental access sessions. From that point forward, this detox process became a standard part of every such session. There came a day when he had a very different viewing experience. His monitor held a sealed envelope and said it was going to be a personality profile. As soon as the session began, Lynn felt compelled to say, Whatever evil you think this guy did, he didn't do it. His monitor simply motioned that he continue. Soon, Lynn was experiencing sensations. I felt as though I was glowing inside. Then, something very rare happened. Lind found himself standing beside the man. He did not take any notice of my presence. I started to put my hand on his shoulder. He didn't seem to take any notice of my presence. I started to put my hand on his shoulder to get him to think of something so I could gain better mental access. As my hand touched him, I felt a sudden rush of the most peaceful, energetic power I have ever known. As I tried again to gain better contact, I felt something I remember vividly to this day, 
but which I will never be able to adequately describe to anyone. The two soldiers, Lin and his monitor, had both been working double-blind. Neither one had any way of knowing who the target was. When the session was over, the monitor opened the envelope and unfolded a single sheet of typing paper with one word written in the middle. Jesus. Lin wrote, This was the most moving and soul-stirring session I had ever done. A quiet glow filled me and my entire being for months afterwards, a glow that returns every time I remember that session. As part of this research, I spoke with Dr. John. As part of this research, I spoke with Dr. John Alexander. He enlisted in the Army in 1956, retiring as a colonel in 1988. He was one of the initial team members that developed and studied remote viewing, and he's also written and lectured on the reality of UFOs. John listened patiently as I described the otherworldly aspects of Don's deer hunting experience, the eerie silence, and how an owl and squirrel seemed to play roles in a staged drama. At the time of this event, Don had been deeply immersed in his own practice of remote viewing, and it was this connection that intrigued me. I asked John, when someone is involved with remote viewing, do these things happen? John paused and slowly asked the question again, do these things happen? Yeah, they do happen. Sometimes. He went on to explain that as the military got more deeply involved in remote viewing, many of the people working in the program began to have these kind of mystical experiences. He was clear that it was certainly not all of them, but it happened enough that it was recognized as an after-effect. John then said, The question arose, what are the ethical concerns with using the mystical in a military application? He didn't follow up on that. Nathan, Owls, and Thoughts Made Real I have a close friend I'm calling Nathan, a pseudonym, who's had a long list of unsettling experiences with both UFOs and owls. Like Don, he's also taken on remote viewing as something more than just a hobby. I asked him the same question I'd asked Colonel Alexander, but I pressed him for more information, wanting to better understand the why of it. Could the repercussions of the focused psychic process of remote viewing actually influence reality? Could thoughts manifest into the physical realm? Nathan understood my question and reflected on the protocols created by Lynn to fully close a session. He sensed that if a session isn't ended properly, there might be interactions and overlay between the two worlds. He told me, It's as if a window to the subconscious mind and the non-physical universe is open. Then he described something that happened just four days earlier while driving at night. He hit and killed a deer, and at the exact moment of impact, a huge owl flew in front of his windshield. He wrote, thus symbolically linking the two worlds in my mind yet again. Deer and owls show up repeatedly in this book and in many of the accounts privately shared with me. These are archetypes made real in the lives of the experiencer. I was spinning my wheels trying to write about these issues. It had morphed into something that left me struggling, and I needed Nathan's help. I sent him a work-in-progress document, and we began a long correspondence to make sense of some of these tangled threads. Nathan sent me an email with the opening line, 
you aren't going to believe this. He described something that had happened earlier that day in the pre-dawn hours of February 5th, 2017. While driving 50 miles an hour on a lonely road with a co-worker, there was a sudden loud thud. He wasn't sure what happened and his co-worker said, well, he's dead. A big owl just hit the windshield. Nathan had endured a lot of experiences like this and said, I started looking around for anything else strange and it dawns on me that this was the same town where an owl had hit my windshield back on Super Bowl Sunday 2015. He was writing me two years later on Super Bowl Sunday 2017. He said, then it hits me. Super Bowl. Superb owl. It's the same words. It's the same spelling. I can't believe it. The trickster strikes again. What does any of it mean? He was unnerved, and I understood why. We both felt the same thing that his helping with this chapter had somehow generated a weird set of owl synchronicities. I needed to add that Nathan has had a lifetime of odd experiences that certainly seem to imply ongoing UFO contact. Something very odd is at play. It seems that the act of remote viewing can open a door into our physical reality, allowing in all kinds of strange experiences, both good and bad. Remote viewer number one. After his initial success with his first attempt at remote viewing, Don reached out to Joseph McMonagall, perhaps the most highly acclaimed remote viewer in the world. They began a correspondence in the late 1990s, and Joseph suggested he avoid any remote viewing courses and train himself. They were in touch with each other via email several times a week for the next few years. Joseph feels he's been psychic since birth, but had always been wary of these abilities, all that changed in the aftermath of a near-death experience. It was this powerful event that enabled him to truly accept his talents. In 1970, Joseph was a young army officer stationed in Germany. He was in a restaurant with comrades when he suddenly felt strange. He excused himself and walked out the door. He wrote, I found myself standing on the cobblestone road out front, watching with curiosity as the rain passed through my hands. I drifted over to see what the commotion by the door was all about, and found myself staring down at my own body, lying half in and half out of the gutter. His friends loaded his lifeless body into their car and raced to the nearest hospital. After being declared dead upon arrival, he found himself floating within an intense white light. He describes being totally whole, totally complete, totally loved. I knew this must be what God is, and I didn't want to leave. I just wanted to be there, in that light, forever. He heard a voice telling him he could not stay. It was not time for him to die. You have to go back. You have things to do. He tried to argue, but to no avail. There was a sudden popping noise, and he sat up on the hospital gurney and looked around. Joseph wrote, Once you've had a near-death experience, it's almost impossible to act normal again. It alters the very color of the light in which you see things. It was as though my inner sight had suddenly become crystal clear. Eight years later, this man would be referred to as remote viewer number one by the Army's Psychic Intelligence Unit at Fort Meade, Maryland. In the Flow 
Don is grateful for Joseph's role as mentor during this journey. Joseph was kind enough to offer a lot of advice and tips along the way. I was obsessed with remote viewing for the first four or five years after I discovered it. Even though Joseph advised doing only one or two sessions daily, I did three to five sessions daily. That meant three to five hours every day spent in a floating, dreamlike, altered state. Don was consistently operating at a level that Joseph considered world-class remote viewing. Of that time, he said, I was also meditating daily. I felt very much in close connection with the universe during those days. Synchronicities happened all the time. I was in the flow and felt constantly close to God in the universe. This was my state of mind when I went deer hunting that day. It seemed significant that Don was deeply immersed in remote viewing leading up to his experience with the snowy owl. He was in the flow and felt close to God when something magical happened. It was as if some part of him was halfway through a door, interacting with that other world. Don undertook a simple remote viewing session around 2003. Like always, it was done double-blind, and his wife helped with the process. She wrote a set of words on a single piece of paper and sealed it in an envelope. Don wrote, After meditating, I opened to the target. My first perception was a sense of incredible peace and love emanating strongly from seemingly everywhere. It was unbelievably powerful. I just sort of floated there, bathing in that feeling for a long time. Then I got an image. It was a vision of the earth, rolling slowly, turning over and over, and across the earth was a huge brown cross that was bent so that it seemed to be stuck to the surface of the globe. As it turned, the feeling of love and happiness kept increasing until it was unbearable. At some point, I passed out. When I woke up, an hour and a half had passed. I sat up, my eyes were red and swollen, and I realized I'd been crying. I don't recall crying at all. It must have happened while I was passed out. Don opened the envelope and read the words, The Impact of Jesus Christ on the World and Humanity. Don wrote, For the next week I felt like I was floating on air. That sense of joy and peace stayed with me for many days after that. I wish I could have hung on to it. It really reaffirmed my spirituality. I know this probably doesn't sound like much to anyone else. It's very hard to put these spiritual experiences into words, but they meant a lot to me, and always will. Don's experience is remarkably similar to how Lynn Buchanan described meeting Jesus as well as how Joseph McMonagall described crossing over into death. Don shared a beautiful story from his childhood. As a very young boy, he would walk from his home through the woods to his grandparents' farm. He loved spending time with them and would often sleep there. There was a night at their house when he woke with the feeling of being watched. It was deathly quiet, and without raising his head from the pillow, he could look out the window. He was astonished at what he saw. I was looking at a huge green man. He was very big, maybe eight feet tall and very muscular. Vines and branches were tangled all around his muscular arms, and he had very dark curly hair almost down to his shoulders. As terror began to course through me, I started to rise up from the pillow, and he grinned at me. I had the sense that he knew what I was feeling, and that he was laughing at me. Don started screaming. Both great-grandparents woke and asked what had happened. 
All he could say was there had been something outside the window. His grandfather took this seriously and went outside with a rifle. He never saw anything. The next morning, his great-grandmother asked what he had seen. Don wrote, I remember describing the man as looking like the guy in the old jolly green giant vegetable commercials. She didn't say much for a long time. She just kept asking me details about it. Finally, she asked, Well, what do you think that green man was? My answer strikes me as being incredibly sophisticated for the age. I must have been around four. I told her it was like he was the forest and everything that grows in it. I didn't know the word represented, but that's what I was thinking. That it was like he represented the spirit of the forest, the grass, the hills, the land, the water, the wildlife, everything in nature. My great-grandma got real serious and said, That's right. That's what he is. And you don't need to be afraid. He won't hurt you. He can't hurt you. Are you afraid of the woods? And I said, No. And you don't need to be afraid of him either. I asked if she had ever seen him. She said yes, when she was a young girl, that she saw him several times, and that he'd never hurt her or hurt anything. I asked why we saw him. She said, some can, some can't, that's all. She said, you'll see a lot of things others can't see. That doesn't mean they'll hurt you, or that you need to be afraid. I asked her, what did she call him? She just smiled and said, the green man. And then she got up and started clearing the table. That was it. The conversation was over, and she wouldn't speak of it anymore. This was the Scottish great-grandmother who had told Don that he had the sight. Throughout our correspondence, Don has been passionate about his deep connection to nature. And it seems fitting that one of his earliest memories is of an ancient Celtic archetype of the forest smiling at him. You have just listened to a 40-minute excerpt from the book Stories from the Messengers, read by the author, Mike Cleland. It will be published by Richard Dolan Press in 2018. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now.